Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When Michael Jordan signed his first contract with the Bulls, he had a unique clause that allowed him to play basketball anytime, any place he wanted. It was known as his love of the game clause. And as telling as that story is, it's hardly unique in a game whose history is filled with tales of sacrifice and triumph from some of the most notable personalities of the last two centuries. Today, we will highlight these stories through an excerpt from a new book and film series, Basketball, A Love Story, an exhaustive effort that it chronicles this devotion, this love of the game. Stick around after the excerpt for my conversation with ESPN senior writer Jackie McMullen as we talk about what the giants of basketball have taught us about its legacy. Now we present an excerpt from the book, Basketball, A Love Story, by Jackie McMullen, Rafe Bartholomew, and Dan Clores. Irvin Magic Johnson, three-time NBA MVP. I fell in love with basketball watching games with my dad in the living room. I was three or four years old. Him cheering for the Philadelphia 76ers. Wilt Chamberlain was his favorite player. I would go out and practice Wilt's ugly finger roll and try to be the Big Dipper. And ever since that moment, I just had to have a ball in my hand. LeBron James, four-time NBA MVP. When I was four or five years old, I started playing on a crate. We cut the bottom out, nailed it to the light pole, me and my friends. No backboard, so every shot had to go straight in or you didn't make it. And I remember that joy, playing on the street, cars interrupting our game, the ball going into the woods. Playing basketball, it did something to me. Kobe Bryant, 2008 NBA MVP. I have a basketball family. My father played in the NBA, my uncle played in the NBA, my grandma played, and so when I picked the ball up, I was instantly attracted, almost like I was born to play. Kevin Durant, 2014 NBA MVP My mom took me to our rec center. I walked into the gym, and it was like the gates of heaven opened up. Cheryl Miller, two-time NCAA champion I just knew there was something bigger and greater out there for me through basketball. It wasn't until 1976, I remember seeing highlights of the women's Olympic team, and for the first time, I identified with other female basketball players. Jerry West, 14-time NBA All-Star I've always felt that the greatest thing a person can have is an imagination. When I picked that ball up, I was the referee, the timekeeper. If I missed three times in a row, I'd find a way to put a second back on the clock. When I was a little boy, I could use my imagination to be the hero of every game. Shaquille O'Neal, 2000 NBA MVP It was a movie called The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. Dr. J. Julius Irving was in the movie, but I didn't know he was a real person. So my father said, come on, and we jumped on the train to Madison Square Garden. I'm sitting there like, that's the guy from the movie. Then he goes baseline, throws it down. The crowd goes crazy. I look at my dad. I said, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Charles Barkley, 1993 NBA MVP. I was able to make a great life at it. 
But the really cool thing about basketball is it kept me out of jail. Adam Silver, NBA Commissioner I was in second grade, and I'll never forget. I shot the ball, and it went in. In terms of building character and confidence, the next time I ran up and down the court, I was a different guy. Rebecca Lobo, 1999 WNBA All-Star I'm in eighth grade, and I'm already six foot two. You go to school dances, and no boy is asking the six foot two girl with the big perm hair to slow dance. But when I played basketball, I loved being tall. Basketball was the place where I felt good about myself. Spencer Haywood, 1970 ABA MVP. We didn't get a basketball for Christmas because my mom could not afford it. So she decided, I'm going to make you boys a basketball. And we were like, how are you going to make a basketball? A basketball's got to bounce. So she made us a ball out of this croaker sack. And we were allowed two bounces in our head to make the pass or make the shot. That's when I started to enjoy basketball. Joining me now is ESPN senior writer Jackie McMullen. Jackie, thank you for taking the time again. Oh, I always love talking with you, Mike. Oh, thank you. So this book, which I could talk about forever, which I will not. I know you're busy. But there was my when I was going through this and I was getting ready to talk to you, my first thought was something that I wanted to ask you that I thought should have been in the book but wasn't, which is when did you fall in love with the game? Well, it's funny. I fell in love late. I was, um, I grew up in a neighborhood with mostly boys and it was, you know, the sixties in Boston and we just played hockey all day. We played street hockey all day long. So I don't think I picked up a basketball till I was about 14 or 15 even. And I was going to try out for our high school team. I grew up in Westwood, Westwood, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And the teams were really, really good. There was a coach there. Her name was Kathy Delaney Smith, who's now the Harvard coach and the all-time winningest Ivy League coach in history, male or female. She's past Pete Carrill. Wow. And um, so to have a coach like that in high school, you can imagine. So, you know, I was an athlete. I was playing all the other sports. I was playing field hockey, running track, doing all that. But I went to go try out for the basketball team, and I looked in the door, and I saw these kids shooting around, and they just looked like they knew what they were doing. And I knew that I didn't know what I was doing. So I turned around and said, you know what, I'll, I'll play next year. And all of a sudden, you know, two years go by. Now I'm a junior and you can't play as a junior. It's too late. But I was in her office one day because I found her to be a really sort of intriguing figure. She was just someone that was talking about rights for women and girls. And I didn't mm-hmm. know that many people back in the, you know, now you're talking the seventies. So right. I was kind of drawn to her and, she started telling me that she had seen my younger sister play down at the junior high school, my sister Sue, mm-hmm. who was a much better player than I was. And she said, well, at least I'll get one McMullen to play for me. And I said, well, I'll play. And then she looked at me just completely horrified. And I said, <laughs> oh, I know, it's too late, never mind. And she said, you're telling me you wanted to play all this time? Because, <laughs> you know, I'm walking down the hall, I'm five foot eleven for crying out loud. Right. So, um, so... I think it took me a while to fall in love because I wasn't very good. You know, I was awkward. I was left-handed. I shot one-handed. My elbow was way out. You know, I didn't have beautiful form. But I do remember the first time I took a ba- shot a basketball, which was well before I tried out for that team. Mm-hmm. And that swish noise, it's just the greatest noise in the world when a ball swishes through the hoop like that. 
But then once I started playing, I, I didn't stop till I was almost 56 years old. I kept <laughs> playing right after college, um, pretty, pretty consistently and regularly. And, um, you know, it's, you and your friends had a regular game for a while, right? Yeah. We, every Sunday morning, a bunch of old ladies, um, well, actually, some of them were young. Some of them were in their 20s and 30s. But most, almost everybody was, well, everybody was at least a high school player. And a lot of them were also ex-college players, including my sister, Sue, who went on to play at Fairfield. So we had some great games. And, um, and then I started watching the game and really fell in love with it. You know, when I was growing up, the, I don't remember the Celtics being on TV. Now, they may have been, but I don't think they were on very often. Whereas the Bruins, you know, if you, if you, were, if you had UHF, Oh, and TV thirty eight. Thirty eight. You were going to watch the Bruins every. You know, I remember my dad used to let me stay up. You know, late on Sunday nights to watch the Bruins with Johnny Pearson and Fred Cusick and all those guys. So, mm-hmm. I was just a hardcore hockey girl. Um, but boy, once I fell in love with basketball, I never looked back. Well, we appre- Well, I appreciate your love of the game. Definitely, what I've been able to read that you've done, and the best compliment I can give this project is what I've learned. Meaning there are some subjects I get like a little arrogant about because I think I know everything. Like, mm. like when I went to go see Magic Bird on Broadway at one point, I wanted to raise my hand and say, "No, no, 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 that didn't. That's not how it happened." But, right. uh, but with each section of this book, I learned something that I didn't even know existed. Like mm-hmm. how, the depth of how Connie Hawkins was treated, or just about any right. ABA story. But uh, in your team's research was meticulous and. But part of that was people opening up. Like, how did you, how were you guys able to get everyone to open up to the degree that they did? Because it seemed like everyone told you everything. Well, I think part of it is when time goes by, when you retire and you're out of the game, you get, you feel like you're forgotten. And I hear this a lot from ex players, great players. Um, Spencer Hayward, I've talked to about this. Mm-hmm. Lenny Wilkins, you know, some of the great names in our game, Oscar Robertson. And so when someone takes the time to actually sit down and ask you about your role in this game that you loved, that was part of your life, I think uh, you have fresh perspective and you're not worried anymore about saying the wrong thing. And I was joking with someone the other day, you know, Wayne Embry is one of my favorite people on the planet. He, of course, is an executive with the Toronto Raptors now, but he was the first ever African-American GM with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Mm -hmm. And I used to have to call Wayne, you know, to ask him about things. And as as polite and as nice as Wayne Embry was, he never told me a damn thing <laughs> because he was a careful GM. He was a private GM. And so to listen to what he went through and how open he was about, for instance, the racial strife that he endured. And mm-hmm. one of the most poignant moments for me was him talking about playing with this, you know, the Celtics had traded for him. He was Russell's backup and he's he's sitting on the bench getting ready for a game seven against Philadelphia and he's, you know, just trying to get himself ready and psyched up for the game. And some, some fan comes out of the stands and throws a banana in his lap and says, have a banana, you ape. Huh. And can you imagine, you know, yeah. what that is like? And so I thought Wayne was very insightful, very interesting in this book. And it made me laugh a little bit because, you know, all these people that, you know, actually Lenny would be another one. Lenny was always pretty careful as the coach of the Hawks and, mm-hmm. and uh, the Knicks and some of the other stops he made. And uh, he had some amazing stories to tell. And one of the stories that, again, racial discrimination stuck out with me with Lenny was he was living in St. Louis and his neighbor was just a racist. And his neighbor, you know, Lenny would be out at you know, dinner time playing with his young <laughs> daughter and the guy would back his car into the carport so he wouldn't have to look at Lenny and his family. <laughs> 
And it enraged Lenny so much that he made sure he went out there every single night with his daughter just so the guy <laughs> would have to struggle to back his car into the carport, things that's like that. Fa- that's fantastic. From the people, um, just from the uh, the pioneer side of the game, whether it be the women's basketball side mm-hmm. or some of the racial equality you saw, did you when you spoke to these people, as you said, sometimes they feel maybe a little forgotten. Was there like a common theme uh, with some of these people and what they sort of wanted readers to get out of right, this book or right. the stories they well, wanted to tell? So I think I should tell everybody that, you know, this project um, originally was going to be a film and it is mm-hmm. going to be a, a wonderful film that Dan yes. Chloris uh, put together. And so Dan was the one who set up all the interviews and I did do some of the interviews, but I certainly did not do them all. Um, but the ones that I did, I, I, I did do quite a few of the prominent women, um, Nancy Lieberman, Annie Myers, mm-hmm. uh, Kathy Rush, some of those those pioneers that you're discussing. And the one thing that became very clear to me in, in speaking with them was just this this idea of why am I so different? You know, mm-hmm. I want to go out and play basketball. How come there aren't other women like me? Where are these other, you know, aren't there any other girls that feel the way I do? There was a real feeling of isolation. You know, Annie talks about you know, um, going to school, and of course she's supposed to be wearing a dress, but mm-hmm. she'd wear a pair of shorts underneath because she knew she was probably going to play basketball at lunch or maybe even football, and she might fall, and she better have some shorts on in case her dress flies up. And she's the only girl playing. And, you know, Diana Taurasi, she's the only girl playing. And Cheryl Miller had a great line. She's like, well, I didn't like playing sports with girls because they wanted to kiss boys and stuff. I just wanted to play. <laughs> and so I think there was a sense. I mean, Kathy Rush, who, for those who don't know, was the uh, legendary coach of Immaculata College, who Mm -hmm. won these uh, NCAA champion, you know, well, they weren't NCAA back then, won national championships. uh, And they were just a tiny little school in Pennsylvania. They they were playing the big time schools. And she was the coach. But at one time, she was a player. And she was playing on her high school team. And the next year, they got rid of the team. And she (laughs) said, and my coach didn't seem to be bothered at at, at all, and I, I couldn't understand. So I think for the women in particular, there's you know they love the game every bit as much as the men. You might even argue they love it more because they're certainly not getting compensated. So were there anything – in some of the people you spoke to, was there anything that was off limits? Or more importantly, were there, were there subjects that you found that people really wanted to set the record straight on? Well, I think racial discrimination was a big hot button for a lot of these ex-players because they went through so much. There were racial quotas in the NBA, even though the NBA liked to deny it. Oscar Robertson talks about seeing the rooming list, and the black players all had asterisks next to their name. And, you know, Bill Russell famously went out and said, uh, you know, there's how come there's only three black players on every team? And, of course, originally it was only two. And he said, you know, it looks like a racial quota to me. And then, you know, the commissioner at that time, Walter Kennedy, calls up and says, what the heck are you doing? And he said, you know what? If I'm lying, you should find me. You should kick me out of the league. You can do anything you want. But look me in the eye and tell me I'm lying. And, of course, the answer was that they weren't lying. So I think for them, um, the the racial indignities were very much a hot button. And, and, And by the way, this is not reserved for just the old timers. Mm-hmm. You know, Shaq in the late 80s talks about being in high school in Texas, going to a road game and driving by a cornfield with his jersey in a noose hung in effigy. Um, Isaiah Thomas walking to high school and, you know, going to school in Chicago. Now, he, he had to take a bus and a train and a subway and then walk to right. get to his school. 
and it's bitterly, bitterly cold on, on these winter mornings that he's walking to school, and he sees his teammates driving by in the car with their parents, and they don't stop to pick him up. And he gets to school, and he's freezing, and he says to his, his friends, why don't you pick me up? You saw me. And they say, oh, well, you know, we would have picked you up, but, you know, our parents, they're a little different, you know. Mm. So that's not that long ago. No. Uh, Patrick Ewing talking about, you know, growing up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and okay, uh, yeah. they're getting their tires slashed. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, racism is uh, unfortunately still alive and well in our country. Uh, yes. Well, um, well, the popularity, like one of the other themes is you talked about with like the – the women's basketball, how far women's basketball has come and mm-hmm. and a lot and how far racial equality has or actually hasn't in some cases come. Right. You know, the, while the popularity of the game is always on the surface and the great teams and the great players are always deba- uh, debated, do you think basketball gets enough credit for its role in any quest for like racial and gender equality? I think I think it is now, and I give LeBron a lot of credit for that. LeBron and and Dwayne Wade and Chris Paul, who have been very vocal in their um, their willingness to take on social injustice, and um, and the collaborative uh, way that the league under Adam Silver and LeBron and the Players Association and all their group, the crew they're they're doing it collaboratively, and um, so you don't hear any of that negativity that you get from the NFL. And, you know, a commissioner and a president and players who don't seem to be on the same page. So, but, you know, I think that LeBron and, and CP3, who are both interviewed in the book, mm-hmm. um, I think they understand that what they're doing would have been impossible if it weren't for Oscar Robertson and, and Bill Russell and, and some of these other, you know, Wes Unseld and Charlie Scott, of course, the first, you know, African-American player at North Carolina. Some mm-hmm. of these guys that paved the way for them. And, and I think it's nice that they're mindful of it. So. And what I was saying earlier about, like, you know, whenever I see something, I think I know everything and I learn more. I'm greatly impressed. In this whole process, was there, uh, was there anything that you learned? I mean, like you have much right. larger base basketball knowledge than I do. But right. Well, you mentioned you, the, you, you mentioned Connie Hawkins, and mm-hmm. I knew that Connie Hawkins was a great, um, you know, high school New York City player. My dad's born and raised in New York City, so I I've heard about the legend of the Hawk, and I knew he was a great player, and I knew he was involved in some kind of point shaving scandal, um, but I had no idea what he went through, mm-hmm. and the fact that he never did actually shave any points, and yet right. was blackballed from the league for really the most formative years of his career. And, uh, you know, Connie, we, Connie was interviewed for the project. He died, you know, about a year after that. So he's, mm-hmm. he's gone now. But, um, Dan Cloris, again, the filmmaker, the wonderful filmmaker who started this whole, this whole, put this whole thing in motion. He interviewed Roz Lippman, who was the attorney for Connie Hawkins. And the stories just, it would blow you away. You know, she knew Connie Hawkins a little bit assumed like everyone else that he had done something wrong because he was blackballed from the NBA. But then she and her husband, who were also also an attorney, started talking to him and they realized, wow, you know what? He, this, this isn't right. What happened to him? And one of the the, the greatest anecdotes I think of that whole thing was they talk about Jack Molinas. So Jack Molinas was a fixer. He -hmm. was a point shaver. He played for the Detroit Pistons and ended up in prison. And he was um, associated with Connie Hawkins. He used to drive Connie Hawkins and Roger Brown around in his red convertible. Mm -hmm. And so that's how the feds, you know, focused on on Roger Brown and Connie Hawkins because of his association with this this Jack Molinas. 
So one night, Roz Littman's husband comes home and says, come on, we're going to go, we're going to go interview Jack Molinas tonight. She said, oh, so we're going to the tombs, which was the name of the prison that Jack Molinas was in. And he said, no, actually, we're going to meet him at a restaurant. <laughs> and Roz Littman is thinking, well, how the heck is that going to happen? Isn't sure enough, they right? go to the restaurant. And in walks Jack Molinas with a girl on his arm, dressed in a suit, not in prison garb, with two prison guards standing by. He has dinner with them, tells them that he never asked Connie Hawkins to shave points, and then they took him back to prison. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. Wow. <laughs> so uh, I didn't know about any of that, and uh, I, thought it, I thought it was fascinating. The other footnote to that, of course, is there was a young attorney working for the uh, law yes. firm that the NBA had hired that was supposed to be, you know, handling this and figuring out what they needed to do about Connie Hawkins. And this young attorney, you know, went through, poured through all the uh, grand jury testimony and all the, 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 you know, the documents associated with Connie Hawkins and went to the NBA and said, look, as your lawyer, I'm telling you, you've done this guy a terrible disservice and he should be playing in the NBA right now. And that young attorney was David Stern. That that was the, that was one of the first moments. Like what? Like when, yeah, when I was reading that, cool. right. like every time I thought, like, well, this story can't get any more like unbelievable. And then in walks David Stern to the narrative. Right. Right. Exactly. So, which personality from this book do you wish you could spend more time with? Oh, if you wow. had to pick a couple. Um, hmm. Good question. Well, I know a lot of these guys already. Um, but I, I guess I would have liked to have spent some time with Oscar. I, I don't know Oscar Robertson well. Obviously, he was well before my time covering the league. Um, and I think his story is sort of heartbreaking because of all the racial discrimination he endured. And then the stance that he took that, you know, Jerry West says in the book, probably cost him a chance to be a, a coach or a, or a GM afterwards because of some of, the, some of the stands he took. I wish John McClendon was alive. I would love to talk to John McClendon, who was in, in essence the father of fast break basketball, the one that invented the four corners and then showed Dean Smith how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was African-American, so that's why most people have never heard of him because blacks were not recognized then. He would have been someone I would have really loved to have, uh, to have talked to. And I do wish also, and I, you know, Pat Summit was very ill when this project started with dementia, mm-hmm. with advanced yeah. dementia. And so she's well represented in this book by... Uh, the wonderful Sally Jenkins, who offers incredible insight in this book on Pat Summit. She was not interviewed for the film, but she was in- included in our book and uh, really is great. Knows, you know, Pat Summit, she says, was her best friend. And she speaks very well on Pat's behalf and is a little tough on Gino. You know, the Pat versus Gino chapter's got a nice little edge to it. Yeah, oh, yeah. And the, the Pat Summit, I mean, when you talk about. Uh, Isaiah Thomas. Now that wasn't that long ago, but right. What Pat Summit first had when she was starting a career, right? Like, that wasn't yeah. that long ago, and like it wasn't just like Pat didn't just drive the bus, team bus. Like she fixed it, like it right. Was... And she washed all the uniforms. <laughs> and you know the part that I found um, that I didn't know, and again Sally Jenkins provided the context for this was Sally talks about walking on campus with with Pat Summit just a few days after they've won. I don't remember which championship, but, mm-hmm. you know, they'd won. It was not the first one. Let's put it that way. Yep. Um, it was one of her multiple national championships that she had won for Tennessee. And they ran into a high-ranking official at the school. And she said hello to him and introduced Sally. And then he said, oh, did you, uh, did you win that game that you were playing in? And, you know, the <laughs> idea of being so dismissive, like your little games don't count. Right. Which is hilarious to me, because if you ask anybody 
what do you know the University of Tennessee for? In terms of athletics, everyone's going to say the same thing. Pat Summit put Tennessee on the map as the greatest basketball women's dynasty until UConn came along. Well, she did something many times at that school that Peyton Manning couldn't do once. That's right. So, I mean, so the, the, the arrogance and the, ad, the dismissive attitude of that, of that executive from the school, that gives you an idea of, you know, it's the South. Some of the mm-hmm. things she was up against, people yelling, go back in the kitchen, Pat. People who were, who were fans from her own school. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, what she did was just nothing short of remarkable. Now, of course, what Gino did was also remarkable. And the fact that they were, ended up on a collision course with each other and, and each other's programs, and it was great basketball theater. And I'm glad, you know, that the Tennessee-Yukon uh, rivalry is now going to be renewed. Because yes. when, when the book went to press, that was not the case. Yeah, and that's, I mean, it's its sort of like being a Red Sox fan and when the Yankees are having a down time, right. I always say, I actually don't like it when they're not good. It's actually good no, when and everyone's good. No, and it's funny good. because, you know, for a while there, UConn got rolling and they, you know, when they had those great teams with um, Sue Bird and mm-hmm. Asia Jones and, of course, Diana Taurasi and Swin Cash and, and general, you know, all those guys, you know, they were winning, 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 and you thought, wow, maybe, maybe Tennessee's never going to win again. And then along came Candace Parker. Mm-hmm. And uh, and put Tennessee, you know, back back in the in the conversation. So I don't want to say player here, so I'll try to qualify a little differently. But uh, what did you find to be the most underrated personality slash contributor to the game in this journey you had in this project? Hmm. Well, that's a that's a really difficult. I will let you pick more than answer. one. Right? Yeah, because there's <laughs> there's. Um, well, there's so many different aspects of the game. There are. There's so many. The international um, so, game, the women's game, the college game. Right. So Wes Unsold is another person that I dealt with um, in my young career. Mm-hmm. He was the GM in Washington and scared the living daylights out of me. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought he was very eloquent in this book, um, discussing his journey. Um, Seth Sanders, you know, people... There's so many great Celtics. I think people forget about Satch. Mm-hmm. He was, again, so incredibly eloquent. Um, talking about, and of course, Diana Taurasi is just a star every time she opens her mouth. Um, she's just a joy to behold. Mm-hmm. It was interesting to hear from Lynette Woodward, you know, a, a name we don't talk about as much, who was just an amazing woman player at Kansas who broke all sorts of records. And, and, you know, I really liked hearing from Kevin Durant in this book. I thought he had some really thoughtful things to add to our, our, uh, oral history. Uh, one of my, uh, the more interesting parts too, for me was, uh, LeBron and the decision and having people now, you know, a couple of years out, dis- dissect how all that went down. There's some very interesting comments from David Stern on that yeah. topic. Um, so that was kind of fun, I thought. Those are those are a few that come to mind. Well, once again, this book, Basketball Love Story, is available now, but it's also a 10-part film series consisting of 60 short stories you can currently stream on the ESPN app and will premiere on ESPN beginning on October 9th. Right. It's going to be great. Dan's done a wonderful job with the film. Really fun. And, you know, the film and the book are, are different. They Obviously, a lot of the stuff is this, the, the information is the same, but we did two very distinctly different things with that information. Mm-hmm. So while they have a lot of similarities, they're also in many ways quite different. Yeah, I've been diving into it at home, and it's great because I can tell everyone, like, Dad's working, leave him alone. Mm, and there you go. <laughs> there you go. Jackie, once again, thank you so much, and thank you again for your time. All right. Thanks, Mike. 
Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories podcasts.